This is the Case Dot Report. Happy New Year, everyone. Orla Kelly is my name, and it's a pleasure to be your host for this 2021 New Year's bonus cast. I know we said we were going to take a break during January, but let's face it, we had to give you guys a small Christmas prezi. So here it is. Our speaker for this bonus cast is a professor of EM at the University of Maryland School of Medicine, is a frequent speaker at national and international conferences in emergency medicine, and some of you might have read one of his many books. And if not, his Twitter feed is a feast of FOMED. It's a great pleasure to have Amal Matu on the show, so let's hear what he has to say. Good morning, Professor Matthew. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. We're very, very excited to have you. Oh, thanks so much for the invitation. It's a real honor to join you all. Our discussion today is going to be on the presentation of acute heart failure. And I suppose nowadays we can't really talk about much without mentioning um, COVID-19. Just in terms of a patient arrives in your emergency department and, you know, the presenting complaint would be acute shortness of breath. Previously, acute heart failure would be up there in your diagnosis. How do you now approach these patients in COVID times? Oh, gosh. You know, it it used to be a lot more fun before the pandemic because we, we could just run in and help the patient. We can go in and out of the room and, and get a lot of people on the team involved. But now because of COVID-19, we've really had to reduce the number of people involved in the care. We, we certainly are very careful about donning all of the protective equipment, the face mask and the respirator and, and everything else. And we keep the patient in, when available, a negative pressure room with a closed door so air can't really escape. And uh, we, we try to do procedures that minimize aerosolization. So we used to be very liberal with non-invasive ventilation, and we've had to back off on that just a bit. We still use it, but we've, we have tried to back off on it when it's not absolutely necessary. And also, we're very careful if the patient does need to go forward towards intubation, we're very careful about any aerosolization and, and you know, all, all the things that I'm sure people all around the world have been very careful about doing. And in the case of, say, the patients that you, you previously would have thought, oh, we'll try them on some NIV and see how they get along, but perhaps they might be moving to intubation. Are you looking at intubating those patients kind of earlier and avoiding the NIV uh, pathway? Or are you, are you happy to start them on the NIV? Yeah, you know, if we have the negative pressure room, then we go ahead with the non-invasive ventilation. You know, earlier in the pandemic, as I recall, there was a push towards trying to intubate the patients early because I guess some of the early literature suggested that they might do a little bit better with early intubation. We, we now, of course, know that intubation increases the risk to the lungs and lung injury. So we'll certainly intubate when necessary, but we're not jumping towards intubation if we can avoid it at all. And non-invasive ventilation is a fantastic way in most cases of avoiding the the intubation. We are using high-flow nasal cannula um, ventilation much, much more than ever before. And so we're going early to high flow as as a bridge. And oftentimes we've been able to avoid even the non-invasive ventilation by using the high flow early on. And in terms of your approach to the patient when they come in, what would f- focus your mind kind of more on perhaps is, is this um, is this a COVID-19 presentation? Is this an acute heart failure or COPD or LRTI? How does COVID kind of change your, your approach to your um, differential diagnosis? Well, we're kind of going into this with the assumption that everybody is COVID-19 positive. So we're taking these precautions cautions for pretty much everyone. If it's a sick patient, we're trying to get the rapid test, which usually we can get the rapid test result back within an hour or two. 
we have a limited number of those, so we don't haphazardly use that test. But in somebody who's really sick, we'll, we'll try to get the, the rapid test. Uh, we'll take all of the precautions that we discussed just a few minutes ago. And we'll use bedside ultrasound to look for the, the bee lines early on. And we'll try to get a chest X-ray sooner rather than later to see if that can help distinct uh, distinguish whether this is true cardiogenic pulmonary edema versus a low bar or multi low bar pneumonia versus COPD. And, and then we also have to worry about PE. And typically, ideally, with the, the PE, what we'll see is a, a fairly sick looking patient, but with an x ray that doesn't show any signs of acute heart failure and doesn't show any signs of a low bar pneumonia. So the differential is pretty much the same. And the problem is that COVID can increase the likelihood of heart failure and increase the likelihood of PE. So it's a similar differential to before with the addition of COVID-19 underlying all of the other conditions. Mm -hmm. Okay, then I guess just to talk kind of more generally about, about acute heart failure, and there's so many you know, terms and, and ways you can you can stratify patients when they come in with an acute heart failure. And there's, you know, there's flash pulmonary edema, acute cardiogenic pulmonary edema, um, sympathetic crashing, acute pulmonary edema, cardiogenic shock. And then there's the, the cold and warm, wet and dry kind of classifications. How do you stratify these patients yourself in order to help you deal with them? Well, Orla, I'm a really simple person. <laughs> I like keeping things as, as simple as possible. And, and I've read about all of those terms before, the, the warm and wet versus the cold and wet and the escape, the, the sympathetic crashing acute pulmonary edema. And, and I don't know that it's really changed my approach to anything. When the patient comes in, again, we'll try to get the bedside ultrasound on their chest early because it's quick and it's easy and it's pretty darn accurate uh, compared to our traditional approach to, to making the diagnosis. And so if based on the initial evaluation, we think that it is cardiogenic pulmonary edema. For me, what the most important thing is, is to take a look at the blood pressure. And I would, I guess I would risk stratify patients as being hypertensive heart failure versus normotensive versus hypotensive heart failure. And if they're hypotensive heart failure, then you kind of worry about some of the cardiogenic shock issues. But if they're normotensive or hypertensive, then I have a, a very simple approach towards the pharmacologic treatment of those patients and also the airway uh, approach to those patients. Uh, so um, in terms of whether they're fluid overloaded versus euvolemic, euvolemic, that's usually the flash pulmonary edema. A lot of that's just based on the history. And I, and I think one of the things that people probably underuse is this really old-fashioned concept called a good history. Uh, if you do a really good history and physical exam, Typically, you can, I, I think you can really figure out whether the patient's fluid overloaded or not. Most patients that have chronic heart failure are pretty savvy about knowing what their dry weight is. And oftentimes just asking the patient whether they are significantly increased over their dry weight will give you a really good indication about whether that patient's fluid overloaded or not. Of course, you look for peripheral edema, uh, you look for other signs of heart failure, you ask the patient, have you been skipping your doses of diuretic? Uh, have you gone to some recent holiday parties and eaten very salty meals? Those are also indications of fluid overload. But oftentimes just asking the patient, during the past couple of days, have you been gaining weight uh, can be very, very helpful. And if the patient says no, and it was abrupt onset, then those are usually the u volume 
ischemic patients to flash pulmonary edema. Uh, and the, the reason I make those distinctions is that trying to figure out whether they're fluid overloaded or not will determine how aggressive you are with diuresis. And then asking the, or taking a look at the patient's blood pressure determines how aggressive you're going to be with your, your venodilators, your nitrates. And so those are the two major things that I use, the history and the blood pressure, to determine how aggressive I'm going to be with the diuretics and the venodilators. I know during your, your ASAP 2020 talk, um, you discussed a paper from Matsu et al. from 2017, a prospective um, RCT on the time to furosemide in that early, early administration of IV furosemide in the first 60 minutes kind of lowers your in-hospital mortality. How do you marry those kind of two in terms of those people that can be uvolemic and you know, and therefore probably wouldn't benefit from osoid versus the, the results from that paper. Well, regarding the Matsui article, Orla, you know, to be honest with you, I really don't use that article at all because the authors did show that there was an association between early use of the furosemide and a better outcome. But what's the first thing that you learn in any statistics class? It is that association does not imply causation. In other words, just because early use of the diuretic was associated with better outcome, that doesn't mean that the early use of diuretic caused a better outcome. So what could have been responsible for the better outcome? Well, in the study, what they found is that when the diagnosis of acute heart failure was very straightforward, then those patients got diuretics early. On the other hand, when the diagnosis of heart failure was very complicated, maybe confounded by other comorbidities, and the diagnosis was made much later during the course, those patients obviously got diuretics much later. So the use of diuretics wasn't necessarily causing an improvement in mortality, but the use of diuretics was really just associated with how easy was it to make the diagnosis of acute heart failure? Could you make the diagnosis really quickly or were there all these other comorbidities and complicated factors that caused the diagnosis to be made much later? And we already know, based on literature that's been published, that when the diagnosis of acute heart failure is very straightforward, those patients have a good outcome. And when the diagnosis of acute heart failure is very complicated and it takes longer to diagnose, those patients have a worse outcome. We've already got literature attesting to that. So it's faulty to assume that the diuretics caused a better outcome. The diuretics were simply a marker of how complicated was the diagnosis? Was it an easy diagnosis or was it a difficult diagnosis? So I really don't agree at all that the early use of diuretics causes a better outcome, although that's how some people have marketed it. It's interesting that in the very same issue of Journal of American College of Cardiology where the Matsui article was published, there was an editorial that talked all about this and severely criticized the findings in the study. And so for all the people that are big fans of early, early use of diuretics purely based on that article, make sure you read the editorial also, and you might have a different take on the author's findings. Absolutely, if, if you're multi-comorbid and there's a lot more confounding factors that can be involved that I guess, yeah, like you said, kind of make everything a little bit more difficult. Exactly. In terms of other treatments in your vasodilators, what's your approach to um, administering those in patients? Sure, so we've learned to be very aggressive with the, the vasodilators. So when a patient shows up and they look 
really distressed, what we'll do is, is typically we'll get the non-invasive ventilation set up or high flow nasal cannula set up. While that's being set up, the first thing that we'll do is we'll start giving them sublingual nitroglycerin. Oftentimes every three minutes, if they're very hypertensive, we might even put two sublinguals simultaneously under their tongue. One caveat here is Patients that are very tachypnic typically have a very dry mouth. So with the sublinguals, we'll put a drop or two of water under the tongue to help it dissolve. So we'll go aggressive with the nitroglycerin every three to five minutes. And then once the patient has the non-invasive or the high-flow nasal cannula, we'll switch over to IV nitroglycerin. Also, during those first few minutes, we're establishing IV access. As soon as the IV is set up, then we immediately start them on a high-dose IV nitroglycerin drip. Typically, in a hypertensive patient, and again, a lot of these patients have very high afterload and they're very hypertensive, uh, we'll start the nitroglycerin drip at a minimum of 200 mics per minute if, if their blood pressure is over 180 or over 200, a lot of my colleagues will start them off on a nitroglycerin drip at 400 micrograms per minute. And what we'll find is that when we're aggressive with the nitroglycerin early on, these patients turn around very, very quickly. So that's, the, that's our initial approach. And by using a high-dose nitroglycerin, not only are you getting preload reduction, but you're also getting afterload reduction, and that helps unload the heart much more easily and essentially empty the lungs of their fluid much, much more quickly. So that's our initial approach. We'll go aggressively with the sublinguals followed immediately by a high dose nitroglycerin. And there's even literature out there that talks about bolus dosing of nitrates. For example, two milligrams of nitroglycerin. Now think about that for a second. Two milligrams is 2000 micrograms in comparison to one sublingual nitroglycerin tablet, that's 400 micrograms. We're talking about 2,000 micrograms of nitroglycerin given every five minutes, usually times two or three doses on top of the nitroglycerin drip. It seems like ridiculously high doses of nitroglycerin, but it really, really works in these hypertensive patients and it turns them around very quickly. It quickly reduces preload, it quickly reduces afterload, and Typically, within 10 to 15 minutes, your patient who was in respiratory distress is looking a whole lot better. And, um, and again, it, it's just a fantastic therapy that's being supported by more and more literature, being aggressive with early use of nitrates. And then the diuretics, if based on your history, you think that the patient truly is fluid overloaded, you can give the diuretics at some point in the next hour or so. There's no rush on the diuretics. Hmm. And in terms of contraindications to vasodilators, such as kind of mitral and aortic stenosis, are you listening carefully to the heart to, to listen to them first? Or do you get an echo first? Or are you happy to just go ahead and see how they, how they respond to the treatment? Sure, that's a great question. So in aortic stenosis, in particular, those patients are very, very fragile. So if the patient by history, again, we'll, we'll do a quick history. If they have a history of aortic stenosis, we're going to be really careful. Or if on uh, cardiac auscultation, you hear that very loud systolic murmur uh, in the upper sternal border, then again, we're going to really worry about severe aortic stenosis. Uh, practically speaking, almost all the patients with critical aortic stenosis or critical valvular disease know about it. Um, people don't show up de novo with critical aortic stenosis and have never known about it before. So generally, they're going to know their history. You might find some information in the computer system. And of course, we're going to listen to the heart. And if we're worried about a critical valvular problem, then we're going to be much more gentle about the nitrates and probably start them off on a low dose 
IV nitroglycerin drip and titrate it up as tolerated. Mm. Okay. And you were talking earlier that you're using um, high flow nasal cannula um, a bit more compared to the NIV. Do you find that it has similar efficacy to say a CPAP in terms of, you know, increasing those thoracic pressures or is it just more oxygenation that you're looking for with it? Well, it is more oxygenation and it does provide some degree of of PEEP essentially, but it's not nearly as uh, effective as the, the CPAP or BiPAP. So it, it's... Um, it's essentially just a lower level of positive pressure, but it is something that we'll oftentimes use uh, as a bridge to non-invasive ventilation. And sometimes it's good enough, but if somebody's really in a lot of respiratory stress, we'll oftentimes have to go right to CPAP or BiPAP, which are more effective. And then in terms of other uh, pharmacotherapies, um, you mentioned in your ASAP 2020 talk the use of high-dose ACE inhibitors. Are you using those yourself or um, would you stick with kind of the nitrates? I used to use ACE inhibitors routinely since uh, I first learned about them back when I was in training in the mid-90s. And I would say I've used either sublingual captopril or IV enalapril or enalaprilat uh, hundreds of times during my career with great success. And I feel very comfortable with using the ACE inhibitors. There's always a certain level of discomfort from the people upstairs in terms of the ACE inhibitors. And so there would always be certain arguments about whether the ACE inhibitors were effective or not. We, we have found them to be very effective at afterload reduction. And also they give you a bit of preload reduction as well. The one drawback to the ACE inhibitors is that they're not titratable. You know, you can't put somebody on an IV infusion of enalaprilat or an IV infusion of, of captopril. Uh, as we've become more comfortable and more aggressive with high dose nitroglycerin, which is titratable, we've really switched over to just going with the nitrates. So almost exclusively, we're just going with high dose nitroglycerin that provides both preload and afterload reduction. And we've shifted away from using the ACE inhibitors. But if somebody does have a contraindication to the nitrates, for example, if somebody has been using sildenafil or other medications for erectile dysfunction, we stay away from the nitrates. And those are the patients in whom we're still using the ACE inhibitors. And then I always like to tell the story that we've, we've had a couple of former trainees that were on air, uh, airplane flights and they had airline emergencies where patients went into flash pulmonary edema on the airplane. And in order to treat those patients on the airplane, they just overheaded to all the other passengers. Does anybody have some nitroglycerin? Does anybody have some captopril? And they were able to administer the sublingual nitrates and one dose of sublingual captopril to these passengers that were in respiratory distress on these two different flights. And um, they provided preload reduction and afterload reduction without needing the IV, of course, and uh, really temporized those patients who were in respiratory distress until the, pa the plane was able to safely land a few hours later. Oh, fantastic. And also, interestingly, so we don't have um, IV enalaprilat in Ireland. I, I asked a pharmacist friend before, uh, before this interview. So I presume there's no role in kind of PO dosing these patients in the acute setting? No, if you're going to use the ACE inhibitor, the, the only studies I know of are with sublingual captopril or IV enalapril. It, it's not so quickly effective when it's just an ACE inhibitor is just given orally. Uh, it tends to be the sublingual dosing. But if you don't have the ACE inhibitor, if you're willing to be aggressive with the nitrates, you're not missing anything. Just go heavy on the nitrates and you won't have to worry about the ACE inhibitor.
Mm-hmm. Okay, and so we've we've talked then about about our, our hypertensive patients, and you could probably manage um, careful titration with nitrates in your normotensive patients. What do you do with those patients that aren't quite in cardiogenic shock, but perhaps your your fast AFib patient is going about 120, and that that systolic blood pressure is just hovering between 90 and 100? How do you approach those kind of patients? Uh, you had to throw AFib in there also, didn't you? Yeah, so I know. <laughs> those, I think those are some of the absolute most difficult patients in all of emergency medicine. The the rapid AFib patient who's hypotensive with cardiogenic pulmonary edema, you know, and the reason I say it's so difficult is because you have various options for treatment. None of them are perfect. And no matter what you do, your admitting physicians upstairs will find some way of criticizing you and say, you should have done something different. So um, there are various options. So let's, let's take AFib out of the equation for just a moment and just focus on the, to make my job a little easier, or less. <laughs> I don't know. I don't okay. know. <laughs> All right. I mean, well, if you do have rapid AFib, then, you know, resuscitation guidelines would say you should try shocking the patient. But in the majority of these scenarios where you have cardiogenic pulmonary edema with hypotension, the patients are in sinus rhythm. And, and those are really, really difficult patients to take care of also, because if they're hypotensive, you can't give them the nitroglycerin and you you could not give them the ACE inhibitor even if you had it. And you're also going to be very worried about even giving a diuretic in that, that case. So so what exactly do you do? Well, there's not a lot of options that you have here. You're, you're going to need to support the blood pressure, number one. And typically what we'll do in those patients is choose between norepinephrine versus dobutamine to try to improve the afterload and get the blood pressure up or try to improve the squeeze. Now, how do you choose between norepinephrine versus dopamine? Uh, well, that's when where your bedside echo skills come into play once again. So the best thing to do probably is if you can just use bedside echo and take a look at the heart. If the heart is hyperdynamic with what appears to be pretty good function, that patient probably needs the norepinephrine to improve the blood pressure. On the other hand, if the heart looks like it's beating very weakly, if that's a word, if the heart is not beating well, those patients probably need better squeeze and you're going to go with the dobutamine in that patient. You might need to add norepinephrine plus the dobutamine, but if the heart is not showing you good effort, then you're going to need to go with, at at the very least, dobutamine and maybe the norepinephrine also. So that's how we choose between whether we need the norepinephrine or the dobutamine bedside. Ultrasound bedside echo skills are are very important here. It's reasonable if you want to try to give a, a small bolus of fluid 200, 250 cc's of saline, and that might help the blood pressure. Because again, remember that not all of these patients are fluid overloaded. So some of them might actually benefit from a small fluid bolus. If they don't benefit, then we're going to back off in any further fluid boluses. But some of them may benefit. And you're going to support the blood pressure with the norepinephrine plus or minus the dobutamine. And once the blood pressure is up high enough to now start adding in some nitrates or diuretics to remove the fluid, if they're fluid overloaded, then then that's going to be the the proper approach. Um, The bedside ultrasound can also give you some information about valvular dysfunction, depending on your skills. Now, I'll be very upfront and say that my bedside ultrasound skills are probably not good enough to reliably detect valve dysfunction, but some of some of your listeners are just fantastic. And some of our residents are fantastic at bedside ultrasound. If you can pick up the valve dysfunction, then that's going to be important also because those patients really need a new valve. 
Either way, if somebody has hypotensive heart failure, you're going to support their blood pressure with the norepinephrine and or the dobutamine. Once the pressure is up high enough, you can now start adding in a bit of preload reduction in diuresis. And the most important thing I always say, the most important thing you can do for these patients is get them the heck out of your emergency department. Get them upstairs. Get them upstairs to a cardiologist. They may need a balloon pump. If they have a valve dysfunction, they may, may need a surgeon. But we're not going to be able to do a whole lot for definitive care in the emergency department. So they've really got to get upstairs to more definitive care as soon as you can get them stabilized. Fantastic. Great. Listen, that's been such a fantastic whistle-stop tour through the through the treatment of, of acute heart failure. Have you any more pearls of wisdom for us? Those are really some key questions that, uh, that you've asked and, and hopefully that we've been able to cover and, and clarify. And um, it, it's a really fun group of patients that I find to take care of because these patients typically come in looking terribly sick. And if you're willing to be aggressive with preload and afterload reduction, you can really turn these patients around tremendously and take them from a patient who looks like they're about to die to a patient who is feeling so much better that they're asking for something to eat and maybe even asking to go home. Uh, so it's a very rewarding type of patient to take care of. And that's a lovely note to end it on in terms of that's, that's what we're all um, looking for as, as emergency physicians. So listen, Professor Matthew, thank you so much for joining us on the Case Dot Report. It's been an absolute pleasure and an honor to have you on it. And we'd love to have you on again at some stage in the future if, if you feel like coming back to us. But in the meantime, um, I'd like to wish you a happy Christmas and good wishes to everyone across the pond. And I hope you're all staying safe and well. Thanks so much, Orla. It's been a, a real pleasure and uh, I'd love to join you again anytime. And, and until then, happy and safe holidays to you and, and all of your listeners. So that's all for this bonus cast. Many thanks to Prof. Matthew for joining us. The Case Dot Report will be back to its usual programming schedule in February. So until then, as the saying goes, may your coffee be strong and your rounds be grand. TCR out.